All right, guys. So again, thank you for making the trek over here. For We're going to be in section three and four of the notes again this week. Extras out there if you didn't get some or if you forgot them. And we had the supplement that we passed out. So basically, start off with here. First of all, I'm going to reserve a few minutes at the end um, here for extra questions today. I felt like I kind of rushed you guys maybe a little bit last week. So I will cut off a couple minutes early. So if you have a pressing question, especially if you kind of want to go a little deeper, um, don't be afraid to ask that. I'm going to try and leave a little bit more time at the end here for you guys. I don't want you to feel rushed, and I do want to get to your questions. Um, but just to, to sort of pick up where we left off, um, Moses has gone from living in Pharaoh's house for 40 years to being a Midianite shepherd. He is now married, has children. God reveals himself to Moses. This is the first time that we know of that God has revealed himself audibly, audibly, in 400 years or so. So this is a big deal. And God um, reveals himself to Moses. And we have this theophany or an appearance of God. It's a word we've used here before. Um, And this was a good question we had from last week that I told you guys I'd dig into a little bit deeper. In the narrative, God speaks to Moses from a burning bush, but there's also a phrase, the angel of the Lord. And I told you guys, because there was good interest in that last week, um, where there's extra interest, I'm happy to spend a little extra time. And I dug into that a little bit, and um, the angel of the Lord, the way I left it last week was, we know that God spoke, and we know that it's a divine appearance. My thought on this, and I have some scripture here we'll, we'll read here in just a minute, it's pretty standard church doctrine that the angel of the Lord, that phrase is used in the Old Testament, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We know that the God we worship is a triune God, three parts, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there are, um, although the phrase reads an angel of the Lord, it is a phrase that shows up more than once. And I think we can shed a little light on this here. I'm going to start in Exodus and read from Exodus 3, a short section from the burning bush. This is... Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. It is very interesting that the mere presence of this angel of the Lord made the ground holy, so holy that Moses could not appear. He had to take his shoes off. But this isn't the only place that we see the angel of the Lord appear. There's another spot I'd like to read here. 
This is in Judges. This is right before the birth of Samson the judge, a character we will certainly cover in weeks to come. But the connection here is the angel of the Lord. This is in Judges 13. I'll be reading a few selections out of there for you. Starting in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And then throughout the rest of Judges 13, there's, a, there's kind of a, a narrative that goes on. Um, the angel of the Lord communicates with them several times. But we skip down to verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He had not known who this was previously. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So there's a a nice little tie-in, and a shout-out to Pastor uh, Jeremy, who actually helped me find this one. Um, So just, I don't want to camp on it too long, but just to, to answer your question about the nature of this phrase, the angel of the Lord, I think it is useful to see that it shows up several times in the Old Testament, and that when he shows up, he has divine attributes. His appearance makes the ground holy, and Manoah and his wife, before the birth of their son Samson, um, who previously speaks to him not knowing who he is, but when he realizes who he is, his exact phrase is, we have seen God. So I think that is why it it is, um, I I didn't want to speak on this without doing a little more research, but it's generally accepted that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Certainly divine, um, and I thought you guys might, might enjoy hearing that as a little bit, a little clarification on the burning bush, because at the burning bush we have the voice of God, yet it uses the phrase the angel of the Lord. So just as a, um, hope you might find that interesting, um, but generally speaking it's considered that that is Christ showing up, which is interesting as well because we have Christ showing up in the Old Testament, being present, doing things, giving messages. Um, so Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in the Old Testament, think of it that way. All right. So God reveals himself to Moses. Moses is worried when God tells him his plan, basically, and Moses tries to talk his way out of it a couple of times. Moses is not as um, he's not as quick to take action as he was 40 years ago when he killed the Egyptian. And God gives Moses' brother Aaron as help to him. Aaron, by the way, you see this a lot, just a common misconception I want to clear up. You see this a lot. We have like Moses the old man and Aaron his helper like the younger man. Not true. The narrative tells us that Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83. So they were not, it's just a common, um, it's a common image we see, and I just wanted to point that out. They were both, neither one of them were incredibly young men, um, and they're starting off on this, uh, starting off on this mission from God. And God speaks to Moses and said he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And that's kind of where we stopped last week, and it must have been a quite something for Moses to hear, 
because hardening Pharaoh's heart is the last thing, frankly, any of us would want to do right before we needed something from him. But we see where this is headed. Um, God is going to show his omnipotence. He's going to show his power in a way that never could have happened if, Mo, if Pharaoh had been on board with his whole plan. Because remember, in Egypt, Pharaoh is worshipped as a god. Okay? So that's an important point to make here, is that Pharaoh is worshipped as a god. We're going back to Egypt. And so we see this sort of a... We see this sort of... See how this is setting up. It's going to be God showing His might, showing His power over all things... We talked about how um, Moses appears to the people, the people of Israel. They believe. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will not let the people go. This begins the series of the ten plagues. The ten plagues are, in order, water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of the livestock, Boils, hail, locust, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. And the Egyptians, early on in this process, attempt to explain away God's work by natural means. We, in our, in our world, we do the same thing today. We do it in a different way. A lot of times when something will happen, um, we, in a secular world, we feel we must explain why it happened. We would probably use science for that. But the idea is that if we can figure out a way by natural means whereby something could have happened, in our world that is often the preferred method for explaining something. And that's fine insofar as it goes, but it's not always helpful when it comes to um, works of God. Certainly God can work through nature, but in a secular world that's trying to explain away God, oftentimes we use science. The Egyptians try to explain away the first plagues. They don't do it with science the way we do it. They do it by attempting to have their magicians recreate these plagues or duplicate. Okay, So in the beginning, in the first couple plagues... The, um, the, the, the Egyptian magicians and sorcerers, if you want to call it that, but the magicians are trying to recreate the effect of these plagues. And um, at first, that, that somewhat works out, but you can see the heart of it's the same. We're seeing something we don't completely understand. We're trying to explain it away. How is this happening? Well, it's a magic trick. But then the plagues get progressively worse. Pharaoh still will not relent. He will not give the Israelites freedom to leave. And as, as, the, as the plagues worsen, the Egyptian magicians reach the point, they just say, we can't do this. We, we can't, you know, this is... And there's a passage here I'm actually going to turn to for you here. I'll find it. Um, This is in Exodus 8, verse 18. So we get to the plague of the gnats. And here's uh, 
verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So it's, it is, it's just an interesting point that these, these, these awful plagues start happening, and um, the Egyptians try to duplicate it to sort of explain away what's happening. They come to a point they can't recreate or duplicate these plagues, and the, even the, Egypt, the Egyptian magicians are just like, whatever this is, um, you know, this is the finger of God, this is, we, we can't do this. Um, and today as well, for what it's worth, as I was working this up, you, re- you run into a lot of uh, modern-day scholars who speculate and say that the plagues were exaggerated accounts of natural phenomena, which is, is a different line of reasoning, but it's really the same when you think about it. It's the same thing the Egyptians were doing. They're trying to explain away and make it less miraculous and more normal. Um, you know, I read that some people say that the, the, the coloring of the Nile was due to an algae bloom or was due to a new kind of clay that was seeping into the water. And they said that, you know, the death of the livestock was due to anthrax and all these other things. Um, but again, we don't want to diminish or try to explain away God's works. These were not just normal phenomena. These were terrible, awful things that had real and very damaging effect on the Egyptians. The Egyptian people, by the way, who were more and more, more, and more excited... To, to see Israel go, but Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. And the point of Pharaoh's heart is, is a good application for us because it's actually so important. It's mentioned in the New Testament where it talks about God's sovereignty. I have a, a passage I'd like to read for you from Romans nine sixteen, where it speaks about Pharaoh in the New Testament, Romans nine sixteen. <clears throat> this is Paul. So it depends not on human will or, ex- or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Remember, like I said, Pharaoh is worshipped as a god in Egypt. The Egyptians view Pharaoh as having this divine power, and God, instead of gently persuading Pharaoh to let his people go, hardens Pharaoh's heart and sets up this conflict that leads to the, the plagues. But again, through this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God is showing His omnipotence and His glory. But I have a question for you guys. How should Christians today consider this in the light of the debate between free will and God's sovereignty? This is very relevant. I believe it is. Six times it is recorded that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What do you guys think about that? Is Pharaoh is Pharaoh guilty here? Is Pharaoh blameless? Is Pharaoh a victim? This is important, you know, this is an important application. What do you guys think about that? Jeremy. I think it's hard for us in general to think about uh, 
Yes, I, do, I agree. It's a, I agree. It's difficult, um, but I just I wanted to bring it up because Paul thought it was important enough to bring it up. I think it's something that we can certainly wrestle with, and I think that it is important. Um, it's an important point also. Um, three times it's recorded that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, so that's an important important part of the narrative as well. It's certainly um, God is playing a role in, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, leading to, this, um, leading to this conflict, but Pharaoh is also hardening his own heart. And it's interesting, in Exodus 10, 16, Pharaoh actually confesses sin. I'll read that for you here, Exodus 10, 16. This was after the plague of the locusts. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. So Pharaoh also confesses with his mouth that he has sinned, that he sinned against God. And um, so, so Pharaoh, God is active in this. God is playing a role in this. But Pharaoh is certainly not free from blame. As Jeremy mentioned, it is the, it is the joining of the two, God's sovereignty and Pharaoh's will, which is difficult for us to describe, but is an important point to make so that we know that Pharaoh is not a, a victim here. Yes, Jeremy. I just think it's interesting to know that we're all Pharaohs, but for the grace that God gave us, gave us faith. I mean, yes. None of us has, I mean, you talked about how Pharaoh hardens his heart on several occasions on his own, and God hardens his heart. Well, we all hardened our hearts. Um, and none of us sought after God. None of us chose mm-hmm. him. That's true. 
Yes, Lee. Yes. 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 And that's an interesting application point. It's sort of a what not to do when, when Pharaoh, when things get bad. And it's a great picture, by the way. The God, little g, over all Egypt, who's saying to Moses, please, you know, talk to your God, make this happen. I'm sorry. Um, but the bad example is, as you pointed out, as soon as the, the hindrance is removed, we're back to having a hard heart again. God got rid of the punishment. Now I can be Pharaoh again. Yes. 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 Which is an interesting point. He's acknowledging because remember, in the beginning, they tried to explain away these plagues um, by having them duplicated in a way. But it gets to a point where he's he's certainly Pharaoh by this point is certainly convinced whatever else may be going on that the God Moses is talking to has the ability to make these things start and stop. And oh, by the way. A little point I just throw in there for, you know, apologists who, who want to make, again, make these plagues into just um, exaggerated accounts of natural phenomenon. Remember that, a lot, that when you read through here how God protected the Israelites from these plagues. And that's not, you know, for these plagues to occur in one area but not in another area right next door, not, not so easily explainable. Um, but you can just see that God's hand was there. He was protecting His people while the Egyptians suffered terribly. Um, that's an excellent point. Any other thoughts? Greg? Yes. Yes, and that's, that's the essence of God, is that um, as maker over all things, God gets to choose what vessels He will use in what ways. Um, you know, I will have, when God says He will have mercy on who He wants, that, that is His prerogative. And again, that makes, when you think about that, on the one hand, that is a challenging concept. But on the other hand, it, 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 makes, it, makes, it shows how much God He is, because a God who made everything can do what He wants with it. And we are all very blessed that, that that God cares enough about us to, to reach out to us, to leave us, you know, the Scripture, to leave, us the, um, to leave us His Word and to provide a sacrifice for our redemption. So, again, it, it, it's not an easy thing, but Paul brings it up, and I wanted to park on it there for a second um, about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So... 
at some point, we get to the tenth and the ultimate plague here. It's the ultimate plague is unique in both its severity and its symbolism. It's going to accomplish several things. First of all, it's going to be the ultimate plague. After this, Pharaoh agrees that that um, Israelites may go. Pharaoh has not been persuaded so much as he's been broken. Okay, this wasn't just that like you know. It was a diplomatic coup of some sort. No, Pharaoh is hard-hearted, repeatedly refusing, and finally he's broken, and God will bring his people out um, of Egypt. The tenth plague is preceded by a special instruction from God given to the Israelites by Moses. First of all, when the um, Israelites leave Egypt, they are to ask the Egyptians for things, and it's that way plunder them. And again, we see God's hand here. It's a completely unusual thing to do, but not only do they leave Egypt, they take a lot of Egypt's wealth with them because the Egyptians give them things as they go. Also here, we see very important, and this is very, very important, is the institution of the Passover previous to this 10th plague. And the Passover um, is a feast that will be celebrated throughout the... Uh, through the history of Israel as a memorial and remembrance of this time. But remember I said um, in previous weeks how these themes that we see in the Old Testament set up truths in the New Testament and help us understand the New Testament, okay? I have a, um, a passage here I want to read you regarding the, <clears throat> the institution of the Passover. This is... Um, Historical Survey of the Old Testament by Merrill, one of the sources I'm using for this class. I, it's very helpful, and I can uh, recommend it if you would like to read it. I think it is still available. And I'm going to read you a sort of succinct description of the Passover from Exodus 12. The description of the Passover in Exodus 12 is filled with meaning for both Israel and the church. Every Israelite household must select a lamb on the tenth day of the month, the month that from henceforth was to be the first in the religious year. The lamb was to be tethered in the doorway of the home until the fourteenth day, when it was to be slaughtered between the going down of the sun and absolute darkness. The blood of the victim was to be applied to the two side posts and the lentil of each house with a sprig of hyssop. The entire roasted flesh of the lamb was to then be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. During this hurried meal, the family must be in a state of preparation, dressed for a journey. The lamb, tip, the lamb typified the Lamb of God mentioned by John the Baptist at the baptism of Jesus and prophesied by Isaiah, particularly in Isaiah 53. The blood spoke of atonement, which in the Hebrew literally means a covering. The application of the blood indicated the faith of the one making the application and the ability of the blood to protect from the wrath of God, or as later theology was to express it, to save him from his sin. The roasting by fire conveyed the idea of judgment, which Christ suffered. The wholeness of the victim's body revealed that not one, not a bone of the body shall be broken, which we see a connection to in John 19. There are other typical elements here as well, but these are sufficient to indicate the spiritual nature of the Passover feast as well as its meaning in the historical context of the Exodus. So, 
there are symbols that we see in the Passover that are instituted that are going to pop up again in the New Testament. They're going to help us frame our faith, okay? And we see these themes popping up. So Moses instructs the Israelites to keep this feast. They do. He instructs them to plunder the Egyptians, to ask them for things. The Egyptians give it to them, and they do. And they leave. 600,000 men, they walk out of Egypt, carrying with them Joseph's bones, as we've talked about several times, and much wealth of the Egyptians. Pharaoh, after a period of time, he changes his mind, hardened his heart once again, and he sets out with his horsemen, chariots, and his army. They catch up with the, with the Israelites, and this sets up one of the most famous scenes in the whole Old Testament, which is the, um, the Red Sea. I have a little uh, section up at the beginning of your um, weeks three and four notes where I talk about the Red Sea, which is, um, is most likely transmitted Reed Sea. I'm not going to go through all that section there, but basically, don't think the Red Sea as the Red Sea we know it today, okay? It's very likely that this occurred during the crossing of the Sinai Peninsula or before the Sinai Peninsula was crossed. There are several locations that are probable, but we simply don't know, okay? But, as you guys know the story, there is a miraculous deliverance. Moses stretches out his staff over the sea, and the sea is driven back, creating a path which Israel takes across to the other side. When Pharaoh's army tries to do the same thing, God throws Pharaoh's army into a panic and obstructs their chariots, Moses stretches out his hand again, and this time the sea returns, destroying all of Pharaoh's army. In preparation for this, this also is a, is a happening that sometimes modern historians question, or it comes under attack, and they say, well, it was a small band of renegades, they crossed some shallow waters, they escaped their pursuers in the night, and they vanished. We need to be careful of this sort of thing because just like trying to lessen the plagues from the miraculous events that they were, this is a, an assault on God's total power. It is a miraculous event. We are told that they crossed this body of water, wherever it was, with walls of water on either side. And it was certainly a large enough body of water that when the waters returned, it destroyed Pharaoh's army. So... And here we see a new theme as Israel is delivered from Egypt, as they are delivered from Pharaoh's army, and that is how God delivers His people from these difficult times and difficult moments using methods that are completely His own. It's fascinating to think, again, that God actually made it harder in a way by hardening Pharaoh's heart. He made it more difficult for them to leave Egypt, and then as they leave Egypt and they're pursued once again by Pharaoh, God once again displays His sovereign power by making them cross a large body of water and then destroys, destroying Pharaoh's armies behind them. And I have a question here. Um, 
What other symbols do you guys see or are you guys aware of in the story of the Exodus that, we, that are going to come up again or that we see in, New, in the New Testament? Things that we're learning about God. What are we learning about God from this story about how He brought His people out of Egypt? Yes, absolutely. God protects His own people. And it's not always in the way that those people would probably plan it. I'm sure that um, that's a good point. I'm sure that the Israelites had no thought or care to cross through a sea. I'm sure they would have, you know, planned it some other way. But that's not the way God has it. But He protected His own. He delivered them. What other symbolism do we see in God delivering His people? Yes, yes. Like the, the, the Israelites avoiding or having the Passover only if they mm-hmm. put the blood of the lamb on the door. Yes. God sometimes required some action on, some participation on the part of His people. Um, certainly, uh, certainly that's a... God requiring them to do something but also delivering them is, is huge. We have all this, the rich symbolism of the Passover. Um, and we know as, as, as Christians now, we're privileged with the knowledge that um, Christ will eventually become the sacrifice that permanently redeems His people. But again, at this time, this is still early relatively speaking, in Israel's history, and they don't have all the law yet. We're almost to the point where we're going to get the law. But at this point, they're still discovering these things, and, and this concept of a, of a sacrifice, and the, contest, the concept of God's judgment passing over because of the blood of a sacrifice um, is, is all new, but will become very important later. Other questions? Other thoughts? Yes, Carol? Yes. Yes. A specific obedience in order to re- to obtain that protection was required. Um, and again, again, specific instructions given by Moses about what to do, a hyssop branch, what to do with the lamb, what to do with the blood, the doorpost, and the lentil. Do you guys know what a lentil is? Okay. You guys all know what a lentil is? Okay. Yeah. It's across the top of a door in more primitive architecture. That would be like a very large stone or piece of wood across the top of a doorway. So, yes, also... Yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're being 
They're being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the angel of the Lord. They're, they're being guided out. And um, for us who must, who, who need guidance in our lives every day, I think that's a powerful symbol. I think that's something worth noting. That's an excellent point, Patty. Yes. Yes, that's, that's, that's very good. Um, could you all hear that okay? Yeah, no, it, just, just that readiness um, is certainly a theme that we see that comes to us as well. Um, but anyway, this is actually, um, it's, it's just like I said, I, I want to keep moving with the narrative, but there's just this section of Scripture in particular is just so rich with the symbolism, it's rich with these themes. I want to, I want to stop and see God's sovereignty over Pharaoh, over the plagues, um, and over the Exodus. And I want to see how all these happenings, which wouldn't have happened if it had just been, if, if Pharaoh had just been gently persuaded to let, to let them go. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And there, there was this purpose. First of all, it, it just, all these things that we don't have uh, first of all, all these things that we don't have, that we would not have or understand if God had not done so, we get to see God work. We get the Passover and all these things. Um, so just, it's just an amazing picture of God at work. Um, yes, Lee. Yes. 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 There can be no question that the glory doesn't go to to Moses or 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 to. Um, God, God takes all the glory here. It, it is all His work. And, um, and again, just a unique spot that I wanted to pause so we can really appreciate everything that's happening here. Um, and I think the last section we will go through, which is basically to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, we'll end, about, we'll end a couple minutes early here. And I said I'd save a few minutes here at the end for further questions. And again... This, you feel free to read through the notes there, um, some of the stuff, it, just the, the volume of stuff, sometimes it makes it difficult to hit on all the points. It's like trying to read the dictionary in five minutes. You have to leave a little bit out here. But it's all annotated, so um, if you want to go a little deeper, all the Scripture passages are in, the, passages are in there, so feel free to jump in and um, dig in a little deeper there. Questions here at the end, thoughts, as we get ready, because a lot is going to change next week. We're going to get to Sinai, and we're going to have this coming together of Israel, and we're going to get what we've waited a long time to get, what we haven't had before. They're going to have the law. That's going to, be, that's going to change everything. We're going to start with the law, and, we're, and from there, things will never be the same again. So it's an exciting section for next week, and um, 
Questions? Questions about this week? Greg? This isn't a question, but yes. Yes, and that's, 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 that's an important point. If, if, as we're going through this, because again, I know we really slowed down a little bit this week, but this is just such dense stuff. I wanted to try and get a little bit deeper, but we'll be off and running again next week with um, Sinai and the law. But it's a great point if when we read through this, because especially starting now, we're going to go through sections that paints a very unflattering picture of the Israelites about their grumbling, as Greg was mentioning, about their um, disobedience. And if your first inclination, if your, your first reaction when, upon reading this is just like, wow, those foolish Israelites, they had seen God work in amazing, miraculous ways. Why couldn't they do a better job of obeying Him? And that truth is, as, as Greg said, these things are written for our instruction. So we ought to look at that and think, how do I guard my heart from the grumbling? How do I guard myself from the disobedience? Um, these things were all written down not for us to poke fun or to, um, or to just see it and think this was at a, a faraway place a long time ago. Tonight, when you close your eyes to pray, you are speaking to the same God who delivered these Israelites, the same God who hardened Pharaoh's heart, the same God who spoke to Moses. We are praying to the same God. So I think that's an important point. Um, God, is, God is not, it is still the same God. So I just think that's, a, that's something I've been struck by a lot as I'm reading through this. Is just like when I pray, I'm just like, it's amazing to me that we get to pray to the same God, you know, who, who parted the sea and who killed Pharaoh's armies and who brought the plagues and that's just my thought. Any other questions? Any other thoughts here? We're almost done. Yes? When you were, were researching the plagues, did you find that they relate to Egyptian beauty? There's some theories on that. Nothing I was able to fully, uh, fully flesh out. Here's, here's kind of the, the tricky part about that is a lot of modern historians are really don't like to take the Scripture as a historical document. Um, so there's a lot of, they're always looking for a different way to explain something or trying to, you know, discredit it. I have read that there may be, that 
some of the Egyptian deities may have corresponded with some of the plagues. Um, I, I wasn't able to tell that there's consensus on that, but it's certainly an interesting thought that perhaps it would, the picture there would be almost like God was mocking the deities by causing these different plagues. Um, but again, I, I, I'm not sure about that, but it's an interesting question. I did read a little bit about that. Um, I just, I just wanted to kind of guard us from thinking of these things as just natural phenomenon that happened, and then they were written about in a certain way, and then get passed down for a long time, and then, oh, yeah, you know, it wasn't... Take, take it for what it is. Take them as miraculous events caused by a sovereign God for His sovereign purposes, and not less than that. That's my thought. Yes? Yes. We could say, you know, weather, that was unbreakable. Right. We, we do the same thing now. I mean, we're, we're still, we're doing what they do, which is our, our we use science now instead of magic. Mm-hmm. You know? That is, that is correct. That is, that is our modern inclination is to try and explain away every unusual or ab- unusual thing or every abnormality. Yes. If we didn't have that, we would say, oh, I wonder if there was a, you know, a bunch of stagnant water that brought the gnats. And, you know, mm-hmm. we find ways. Mm-hmm. We find ways to do the same thing. That, that yes. Happens. Yes. Because I think that's our inclination as humans is to decrease the, you know, decrease the supernatural and to question. Sorry, I thought I saw a hand up. Oh, go ahead. Yes, yes, and and again, when 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 even Pharaoh, again possibly with possibly with not the purest motives, but even when when even Pharaoh says, "Talk to your God, make this stop," you know, you know that at least he is he has been humbled to some extent there, and certainly. He was very humbled by the end of our story. Probably the most famous, one of the certainly one of the most famous narratives in the entire uh, history of Israel, um, unforgettable in every way. And um, we will move on, like I said, more quickly to Mount Sinai uh, next week and the giving of the law and uh, further um, solidifying God's covenant people and their relationship with Him. And I cannot wait to get to that. Anything else, guys? All right, let's end with a quick word of prayer here since we have time. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for um, showing your sovereignty through it. Thank you for um, delivering your people and leaving us a record of it. Lord, we are amazed by you. We are amazed by your power. And Lord, thank you for 
Thank you for the deliverance that you offer your people. Watch over us this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.